it is a sobering thing to think about what happened today in our passage. If you'd lived then, would you have wanted to be there when all that happened? Well, think about it. Think about everything that happened, the good and the bad. I, I just would love to have seen Mount Sinai when God was visiting on it. I just I can't imagine what that must have looked like. Moses and the nation of Israel have finally made it to Mount Sinai. What an amazing experience they have. They witness the presence of God, the God of all creation, and God initiates this new covenant relationship with Israel. We hear about the Ten Commandments for the first time. And that was last week. This week, your lesson was prefaced by a lot of digging deeper chapters. Did you notice that? How many people actually did go through all of those chapters? God bless you. I am going to uh, spend a little bit of time today um, in my lecture recapping those because I think they really give us a deeper understanding of our story today. And so even if you did read them, we're going to recap that for you and talk about some of the key verses that I, I really saw that popped out at me when I read them. So starting at chapter 20, the last part of that, and into chapter 31, that's where we're going today. Um, first, chapter 20, verses 21 through 26, that's the part we had not covered last week. This talks about the law concerning the altar where the sacrifices would be made. And the key verse there is... Exodus 20, verses 22 to 23, it says, The Lord said to Moses, This you shall say to the Israelites, You have seen for yourselves that I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. This is a sober foreshadowing of today's passage, isn't it? There are other places in these passages where God reminds them of that important thing. In chapters 21 through 22, we see laws concerning property, violence, and social issues. And the one that really popped out at me was uh, chapter 22, verse 28, that says, you shall not revile God or curse a leader of your people. Do you think the people's grumbling and complaining and quarreling had something to do with this? Think about all the things we've read and we've heard and all the interactions between the people of Israel and Moses and God. You shall not revile God or curse a leader of your people. Then in chapter 23, we learned about justice, the sabbatical year, and the Sabbath, as well as festivals and information about the promised land. This verse really jumped out at me. Um, I, I really kind of meditated on it for a while. It had great meaning to me. It was uh, chapter 23, verse 9. It says, you shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Just look at that. God's showing his loving character yet again and his desire for all 
to come into a real relationship with him, not just the Israelites. He started there, but he makes provision for the resident aliens, resident meaning they were living with them. So they'd already taken a step towards that, hadn't they? So don't oppress them, for you know the heart of an alien. We all know that heart of an alien, don't we? Especially for those, if you were like me, who came into a relationship with Jesus in a later part of your life. I became a Christian in my 20s, and I still remember what it was like to be a resident alien in the company of my Christian friends, most of whom were incredibly kind and loving. And the, um, I don't think I ever had one that was really rude or mean to me, but I did have some that provoked me to debates. And I could never turn down a good debate. But that, even that, God used that. Because it made me think. So remembering where they came from, remembering what it was like to be oppressed in the land of Egypt, to be cruelly treated, I think that's an important concept. Chapter 24 talks about the covenant. Um, It's ratified and on the mountain with God. So in uh, verse 20, chapter 24, verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, remember, what Moses is writing down is not the Ten Commandments. It's the expanded words of the covenant, this deep, bonded relationship that we talked about last week and what covenant means. So he's writing down these expanded words of the covenant regarding regulations and detailed instructions. And another key verse here is, Chapter 24, verse 7, it says, Then he, meaning Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. It's ratified in their hearts. They said, Yes, we hear it. We're going to do it. Famous last words. Right? It's okay. we got to cut these guys a break because we're just like them. Chapter 24, verses 9 through 12 says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Wow. Under his feet, there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Can you imagine what a feast? The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Sapphire. I'm told that sapphire... Uh, can actually be several different colors. What's the color we most often associate it with? Yeah, blue. And even if it's in its rough form without it being polished, um, you can still see that blue there. But our scripture said it was clear. So I'm thinking of clear blue. How many of you have ever traveled to places where the ocean was a clear blue? Yeah. I think of even places like Lake Tahoe when the water is clear and you can see all the way down to the bottom or Hawaii or Australia. 
in different places around the Greek islands. I love the color of blue that God has created there and all the variants. So wait, it says they saw God. But in today's passage, chapter 33, verse 20, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Are you confused by this? Yet you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Jewish and Christian scholars have lots of various opinions on this. Now we know that God does not contradict himself. We know that what he says is true. But there are things we have to wrestle with and think about. There are some things that remain mysteries that we won't know this side of eternity. But let me share a couple of things that I read when kind of taking a look at what these people said, the Jewish and Christian scholars. There's a a word that's used called Christophany, which means the presence of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus hasn't come to earth yet in Exodus, but nevertheless, we learn in the very first book of the Bible that God is triune. He is not just one thing. He is one, but there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That There's a hint of that when God the Father says, let us make man in our image, right? So we know that there's a part of him that reflects what Jesus will become when he comes to earth. Now, the idea of God being sovereign, you know, God can appear any way he wants to. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Would you say that was a face-to-face encounter with God? But he didn't see eyes or nose or mouth, right? The idea of Christophany means that the Lord can appear, and this is what some scholars believe, to people back then in a human-like form. This is Jesus before, the Son of God, before he was actually made manifest in the form of Jesus. Um, These are hard things to understand, but I want to at least share it with you. There's another thing called anthropomorphism, which means sometimes we attribute to God man-like characteristics but we're also created in his image, so it kind of goes around in a circle, doesn't it? But that idea that God can use cultural context to help us understand his character more. He will use things like, my hand is upon you. you, Haven't you ever felt that, where suddenly you've experienced something, either a touch from God that encourages you, comforts you, protects you, but we don't see a hand but we can use that image to reflect that characteristic of God. That's using what we know, what we see, as a way to understand God. And, and again, God can appear in many different forms, can't he? Um, so face-to-face encounters with God. Will we see a face? Will we see a burning bush? Um, we don't always know how God's going to manifest. Sometimes... I can see God in my spice sisters. I can hear his voice in things that you say and that my table says to me in our interactions together. It's a mystery, the way that God can manifest his presence in our lives. And so hold on to that loosely. 
Does that help? Are you more confused now than you were? <laughs> I hope not. If you are, come and talk to me later. We can have more dialogue about this. Uh, verse 2418 says, or chapter 24, verse 18, says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses here is going even higher up on the mountain than Aaron, his sons, and the elders, um, where God tells him more. Chapters 25 through 27, we learn about specifics on the building of the tabernacle and all of its elements. Uh, key verses here are, Chapter 24, verses 8 through 9, where God is saying to Moses, and have them make me in a sanctuary so that, I'm sorry, have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so we can see images of what the Ark of the Covenant, this is a beautifully constructed um, dwelling place of the, the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God wrote on. Um, there are other really beautiful things that are said to be in the, this ark, uh, like some manna, a little portion of the manna that God provided the people of Israel. And so those are really specific, detailed um, uh, outlines that God gives to Moses concerning these and the tabernacle. God instructs Moses to use precious materials such as gold um, to construct things like the ark. The tabernacle itself um, would not actually be built until chapter 40 of our book, of the book of, of Exodus, um, but we can see the outline of what it was to have, the different elements, the entrance veil, the golden lampstand, the most holy place where God's presence actually resided. It really was quite lovely. But where do you think the gold came from? Remember, these people were slaves for over 400 years, and they certainly weren't wealthy. Um, perhaps they were heirlooms passed down. But is it possible that the valuable articles given to the Hebrews by their Egyptian neighbors just prior to their escape to freedom was now being used for a sacred purpose or was about to be used for a sacred purpose? Remember, uh, earlier in our study, we learn about how they, the Hebrews did live alongside some of the Egyptians. We called them their neighbors. And they did willingly give them uh, some of their treasures. What a great way to redeem what was once not dedicated to God, at the very least, and what may have been used in dedication to one of the many false gods in Egypt. You know, that's what God does with us. The basic element of gold remains the same. The value is calculable. Our worth to him is the same, whether we've dedicated our lives and ourselves to him or not. Our value to him is calculable. Only we are much more valuable to him than gold. That's a great way to think about Moses as well. At one time, he was a gold-adorned prince of Egypt, not living a life dedicated to God but part of a society 
that worshipped many false gods. And look how far he's come. Chapters 28 through 29 talk about the garments for the priesthood, ordination of priests, requirements concerning daily offerings. And this is a picture of a, what a priest might have looked like back then. He was invisible. You couldn't see him. There he is. Uh, so that shows you a little bit of what his different uh, ornaments might have looked like. And these colors are accurate. It's amazing, isn't it? So the key verse that I found here was Exodus 29, verses 44 through 46, and God is speaking. He says, I will consecrate, and remember last week we learned, consecrate meant set apart for a holy purpose. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also, and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Chapters 30 through 31 give us details on offerings, the craftsmen that are going to be commissioned uh, to actually build the tabernacle and the elements there. Um, and it's, there are also reminders about the Sabbath in these chapters. A key verse there is chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, where the Lord spoke to Moses and says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with divine spirit and ability, intelligence and knowledge in every kind of craft. God's instructions for the designs of the tabernacle are incredibly detailed with specific uh, things down to the type of wood, the exact dimensions, the type of metal, the kinds of fabric to use, even the specific colors of the fabrics like we saw um, on the priest's garments, and even the kind of oil to be used for the lamps, the kinds of herbs um, and spices to be used for incense. In Chapter 31, verse 18, it says, When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone, written with what? The finger of God. Wow. God wrote the commandments himself on those tablets of stone. Don't you wonder what that looked like? And most of the time when we see Charlton Heston carrying the tablets down or whoever in whatever movie you might remember or even a book that you might have seen, we think of them, I think of them as gray stones. That's the way I've always kind of referred to it. But what if they were made out of that sapphire? That's a stone that they were standing on. What if they were blue or even clear? And don't you wonder what God's handwriting looked like? I do. When I got my teaching credential as an elementary multiple subject teacher, we had to go through a handwriting test where we had to be able to print exactly the way our students were going to learn just, not just printing, but cursive as well. And, you know, that's not as easy as it sounds because you have to look at that grid and follow every little detail. And, of course, it changes from year to year depending on what the school district decides to adopt as the appropriate handwriting. But God's handwriting, I would love to have seen that. 
And at long last, thank you for being patient as I went through all those chapters. We arrive at today's passages, chapters 32 and 33. After all these people have been through, after everything God has done for them, including parting the Red Sea, they return to the familiar trappings of their slave days. The idols and polytheism, lots and lots of gods they witnessed in Egypt. What was going through their minds? How in the world could these people turn away from the God of the universe that just made himself real to them? We would never do that, would we? Or would we? You know, it's easy to be tempted to go back to the familiar when you're in a new situation that isn't panning out exactly the, the way you thought it would. And in fact, is a lot more challenging than you thought it would be. How often we mistake the familiar for the good and the right. With my piano students, I talk a lot about muscle memory. And I tell them that it, it takes many times of playing a song the new correct way fingering, rhythm, louds and softs, all those different elements, before it feels familiar. And I tell them that if they actually learn the song incorrectly, it actually makes the learning process three times as hard. You learn it the wrong way, then you have to unlearn the wrong way and relearn the right way. Whereas if you start at the very beginning, you learn it the right way is so much easier. And then you build up muscle memory because if you are learning it the incorrect way, you're building up an incorrect muscle memory. The, the Hebrews had over 400 years of a muscle memory of seeing gods, idols, people worshiping animals and attributing godlike qualities to them. This was a muscle memory. It felt familiar. Um, Sometimes I'll, I'll have my students play a, a part that they're getting wrong. I'll help them to figure it out the right way. And then I'll say, how many times do you think you'd have to play it before you have a muscle memory? And it, that way feels more familiar. And they'll guess. And I said, well, you know, honestly, scientists believe it's about 60 times. And their eyes go like this. And I'll say, well, why don't we just try it 20 times? Oh, we don't have enough time to do that. Oh, yeah, we do. Two little measures, that's not that long, and we'll go through 20. And pretty soon, their fingers start to remember where they're going. They start to remember that rhythm. But it takes time, doesn't it? It takes intentionality. So can you relate to the idea of falling back on something that seems familiar, something tangible that you recognize that makes you feel in control? So as the people of Israel careen into this ditch, Let's take a second look at God's interaction with Moses. In chapter 32, verse 10, it says, God is, and this is God saying to Moses, now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. God is going all Abraham on Moses. He is, because that's exactly what God said to Abraham. Abraham was the first and he said, I will make of you a great nation, bigger than the stars, more, more people than the stars of the, of the universe. So God's saying, okay, we're just going to start over. Forget the people, and, and I'll just do for you what I did with, with Abraham. 
You'll talk at length about this at your tables today, but I just want to say I love the way Moses reminds God about the past, especially the things that God has said and done. Why does he do that? It's not like God has forgotten. Moses is really demonstrating that he's been listening to God's words. He's been watching God's deeds. He remembers and he affirms. When I teach rhythm to my piano students, I use really easy uh, terms like walk and running and hold it. So walk, walk, hold it, running, running, hold it. And when a child is working on that step of learning a piece, I really encourage them to say it as they're playing it. Walk, walk, hold it, running, running, hold it. And the act of saying it, having it come out of your mouth, is a greater way to really internalize and metabolize that concept. And it helps your brain to get muscle memory quicker. So by saying and reminding God and reminding himself of the things that God has said and the things that God has done is a great way not just to to bless the heart of God because he now knows you really were listening, but to bless yourself as well because you're learning it. You're gaining a deeper muscle memory than you would if you just simply read something silently or you just remembered it silently. Anybody know the song, Your Grace is Enough? Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. It's not like God doesn't know that. And then it finally says, So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your what? Promise, O oh God. Yeah. Yeah, same idea, same concept. A lot of the songs we sing uh, in our car driving to Spice or on Sunday morning at our churches um, is that same concept. We're singing to God and we're reminding him and reminding him that we know at least as much as we can know here. So I wonder if it was at this point that God looked at Moses and said, ah, now I see you have the heart for my people that I've always wanted you to have a heart that will not be afraid to come before the very God of all creation to plead for their salvation and their well-being. In verse 15 of chapter 32, Moses comes down from the mountain with beautiful God-inscribed tablets and with Joshua, his apprentice, who is standing a little bit off, if you notice that in some of the other Digging Deeper chapters. Verses 17 through 18 say... When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses, said, it is not the sound made by victors nor the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. Moses confronts his brother Aaron, the chief accomplice of the people's travesty. And look again at Aaron's response in chapter 32, verse 22. And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they're bent on evil. Blame shifting is alive and well in the family of God. And then I love the laugh that happened when Karen read, and out popped the calf. And one of the ladies at my table said, don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> it's true. Yep. 
Are you relating to any of this? It's uncomfortable, isn't it, when you hear stuff like that and you go, oh, yeah, I do that sometimes. So this horrible exhibition had potentially far-reaching consequences. Not only was the people's relationship with God broken at that point, but so were the tablets as Moses threw them from his hands. And this became a visible sign of the broken relationship between the people of Israel and God. Did Moses think the tablets were now worthless? Did he think that since the laws were hopelessly broken, that now the blessings of the covenant were hopelessly lost? What other kinds of far-reaching consequences do we see here? Take a look at Exodus 32, verse 25. It says, when Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them run wild, to the derision of their enemies. The word derision here means the use of ridicule or scorn to show contempt. The Hebrew used here is lesimsa, and other translations use the words laughingstock, object of ridicule, a sign of weakness. So this disaster did significant damage to their credibility that could have potentially far-reaching consequences. And this reminded me of a New Testament passage out of James, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, that says, But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who, who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. That perfect law, the law of liberty, I love that phrase. The New International Version calls this the perfect law that gives freedom, another word for liberty. The people of Israel heard God's words. In fact, he instructed them, listen to my words. But it, that wasn't the end of it. That was just the beginning. Those were words of freedom. And then keeping inside those boundaries of a deep bonded covenant relationship with him meant freedom. In my car today, I was praying over my lecture, and suddenly this passage jumped out at me in my head. And I quickly, when I got here, texted Daniela, and she put it in. I have to share it with you. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 4, out of the New International Version, it says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. There's a difference between hearing something and listening to it, isn't there? And to listen as one being taught implies that you are preparing to not only hear it, listen to it, but to metabolize it and have it become muscle memory in you, have it become something that then shapes the way that you think and the patterns of behavior that become part of you. I love it when I hear that out of my students. I love it when they'll mirror back to me, walk, walk, running, running. And I go, oh, they really heard me. They were really listening, and they're getting it. They're realizing the benefit of it, and they're using it, and they're learning faster. And that excites me. And I think that's the heart of God for us, that he loves it when he sees evidence of us not just hearing what he says, but of us listening and really following through with what he says. 
We find our identity in who we are rooted in God's words and in his promises. The people of Israel may have turned aside from God and forgotten who they were meant to be or what they even looked like to him. But God never forgot. He never forgot who they were, his treasure. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, now with God's help, I shall become myself. Have you ever looked in someone's eyes so deeply that suddenly you see yourself reflected in their eyeballs? If not, look at somebody at your table and try that after I finish talking. But it's true. And I think when we look at the eyes of God, however that manifests in our lives, we can see ourselves reflected through his character, his eyes, his words, his promises. God knows who we are, who we're meant to be, even before we're born. He knew it for Moses. He knew it for the people of Israel. And he knows it for you and me. So I leave you with these last two questions. What do you think God sees when he looks at you? And how is God helping you to become your truest self? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the eyes of your spirit that are here in this room even now. Thank you for your presence in every moment, whether we realize it or not. Thank you for your words and your promises. I pray that our understanding of you and ourselves will truly be a reflection of what we have learned about you and what we see and what we hear and what we listen for. May it truly become a part of who we see ourselves, of our self-identity. Thank you, Father, for drawing us closer to this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good morning.